Welcome to In Early, the crypto podcast, where I speak to those at the forefront of the digital asset space, telling real life stories, discussing the growth and growing pains of the industry, and exploring how blockchain technology has made an impact on people's lives. My name is Matt Green, and I'm the blockchain litigation lead at Shoesmiths. This week, I speak to Aidan Larkin, the co-founder and CEO of Asset Reality, a Techstars-backed firm providing digital asset recovery as a service to both the private and public sector alike. Aidan and I have known each other for some years and have worked together to assist parties to trace, locate, ring fence, freeze, return, and realize their crypto funds, and know that when done properly, the practices we put in place, as well as the legal systems, including in England, can assist victims in recovering funds followed to any number of foreign jurisdictions. Aidan, how are we doing? Uh, very good, thanks. Uh, great to be here. Thanks very much for coming. So Aidan and I know each other for a few years now, and this is very much um, in the making. So really excited to sit down with you this week. Yeah, me too. Um, it seems quite odd sitting across me in a semi-formal fashion. I feel like I'm being deposed or cross-examined. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes, shall we? We'll never know. Um, so let's just start at the very top. Tell me a little bit about your background. I know you're an auctioneer. Yeah, so um, I actually got into the auctioneering side by working in criminal investigation first. So it sort of started off working in um, HM Revenue and Customs in the UK as a sort of tax investigator, working in a criminal investigation directorate, but as a civil um, investigator. So it meant you got to sort of get involved in these interest and asset recovery cases. So basically I was responsible at the front of the of the sort of system of starting the asset recovery process. Right. So I was the investigator going after um, assets and the traditional, the Al Capote effect. It was the person that you couldn't get that criminal um, uh, sort of criminal conviction against because they had a you know a car wash that was um, that was making you know, nothing to do with the, the drug offences, but they had a car wash making a lot of money. And then you lucrative, would be the person, of course, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good business model. <laughs> and then we would then get uh, involved in seizing their assets. Yeah. And then through that, I actually worked in, in uh, a couple of accountancy firms and asset recovery. Uh, got uh, sort of set on uh, and do my CPI exams and get involved in, in sort of seeing then insolvency and sort of corporate and personal insolvency. Again, all asset recovery related. And then an opportunity came up to set up a proceeds of crime, effectively an asset recovery department in an auction house. And some people, I was asked actually just recently, someone sort of looked at me you know, befuddled going, you're an auctioneer? Like, how, how does that happen? And it's only when you have context of like global asset recovery, every government agency in the world, with the exception of about five, and the UK is one of the shameful five, Yeah. everybody else has a centralized asset management agency. So the United States have the US Marshal Service. There's a government agency that's responsible for managing seized assets. Like the insolvency service has the, the official receiver. Yeah, on steroids yeah. it's that yeah, sort yeah. of setup but no one had we don't have that in the UK um, so what does it mean then does it mean like it seized assets and like the criminal property and then someone yeah, there, lit, there, but it means that there's an entity responsible for the seized assets so in the UK because we don't have an asset management office they use auction companies because if you think about it auction companies have inventory recovery services valuation services great big warehouses mm -hmm. so all around the UK auction companies are the ones actually so if you see government seizing assets and you see a Lamborghini or a boat being seized very good chance there's my old employer Wilson's Auctions very good chance that they're the ones actually seizing the boat with the officers on side so it's a, it's a good example of public and private sector collaboration I did that for maybe seven years um, and during that I then just accidentally um, was responsible for the first private sector seizure of Bitcoin I auctioned nice, it which then right. led to me having the sort of cliched sort of world's first seized Bitcoin auctioneer 
title. Well, you didn't make a big song and dance of it, obviously. No, no, I'll just uh, build a career off of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep you. Keep your it a down. few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how you got into this. It was all through that journey of essentially recovering assets, and then you did that one particular Bitcoin recovery, and that 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 started you off, right? I, I guess what it was, like I was. If you speak to anybody in asset recovery, everybody knows that asset recovery has broken those who know it way before digital assets. Like the statistics. Why is it broken just at this point? Well, the, so the statistics, even if we say the word asset recovery, you say it to 20 different people, it means 20 different mm -hmm. things. Um, it's not defined very well. Um, and that means that asset recovery is getting assets back from people who shouldn't have them. Yeah. You know, corrupt dictator, you know, individual sort of fraudster, any drug dealer, any other, anything like that. But the system, again, it's just not a very coherent, joined-up system. So it's kind of like saying, you know, why do the NHS have waiting lists? Or why does no, why, do, why do we have too many criminals in the world? Why isn't everybody arrested for yeah. every crime? Yeah, 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 so yeah. asset recovery is the same thing, but it's, right. it's woefully bad. It's like 1% of criminal proceeds is actually recovered from criminals. Is like, that in the UK or around the world? Globally, globally. and that's from a Europol 2015 study. Um, so I got to see, because I sat in the private sector, sat in the public sector, sat in sort of civil recovery work, criminal work, I got to see very quickly over like 16 years hmm. that everybody was having the same problem with broken asset recovery. And then we do a digital asset seizure and you realize, wow, there's a really easy way to do that from start to finish that's easier than a boat or a car or a plane. So I sort of got a, I got it into my head. Well, if you can like, demonstrate digital assets that it can be done so much better and so much more value can be returned to society, maybe there's a business in that. Maybe there's a, because right. you can do it all programmatically, virtually on chain, use an analytic tool, find yeah, it, yeah, yeah. recover it from an exchange, give it back to an owner. You can do all of that without so, getting it out of your desk. So because that whole process was pretty streamlined comparatively, you were like, why isn't everything else? Why being isn't done? everyone doing this all the time? And that, and then I spent. I had this little, and um, we called it the sort of alliterative adventure. And that's the most posh and educated I'll ever sound. Um, <laughs> but in November 2019, I went to Bosnia, Brussels, Bucharest, and Brisbane, and spoke at four different government events very different audiences yeah. and I was giving the same presentation and that's not because I'm lazy with slides it is literally because it was the same problem everywhere we went yeah. and on the flight back from Brisbane started to think about there's there's a couple of easy wins that we're not taking and every consultant I used to work with uh, I worked for the the United Nations the UNODC uh, on the side on top of my full-time job I was lecturing on, on this topic so I got to meet this little sort of who's who of asset recovery people and everybody kept saying if only there was a system and only we could do things a little bit differently and that just kept sort of earworming away and so the idea is like it, it's subject to its its local jurisdiction mm -hmm. but no one's really talking to each other in the world Pretty and much. of course obviously assets fall to different jurisdictions yeah, and, and then criminals exploit that and obviously yeah. the, the the uk we're sitting in the uk the uk has this no horrific record of allowing like no corrupt dictators to live comfortably on bail uh, in london many of the cases that i've been involved in asset seizures globally mm -hmm. good chance i'll bump into them in the street um and we just <laughs> like, we're, we're, we're not we're not great with enforcement yeah, yeah. we really aren't it's um oliver bullows butler of the world is my is my shout out for anybody to read the, the sort of blow your hair back um, yeah, we'll put um, a link to that. If there, is it like a digital book? Yeah, it's, he only released it last year. Um, oh, okay. He he does the he does the kleptocracy tours right, as well. Okay. Incredible writer. Um, but again, so we're not great at enforcement, and that, that's what led us to the creation of asset reality because we thought that if we bring together all the people that have a practical experience of the problems of asset recovery, find the bits that can be easily fixed. The bigger bits that are more complex will have a longer term roadmap, but we knew there was a lot of low hanging fruit that we could sort of tackle and just give governments and private sector entities an off the shelf sort of solution to asset recovery as much as possible. So it's a way to overcome the differences in jurisdiction 
um, and to sort of streamline the process. Kind of have, a, have a blueprint. I mean, yeah. investigating and prosecuting crime, bar the underlying legislation, you get some intel, you do an investigation, you arrest somebody, you seize assets. Like the, the process is, if you train to be a lawyer, you train yeah. to be, like there's variations, but there's a process. With asset recovery, it just seems like there was just a lack of, Away, wherever you go, that's the benchmark. That's the, yeah, that's the journey you. And, and whatever, whatever was the local problem was the local problem. It was, it was, it was always done that way. That's how everyone approached it. Okay. So we thought that if we at least there's a standard setting, and we saw this with blockchain analytics. I, I was a sort of there for the initial launch of blockchain analytic tools because we were dealing with the digital seizures, and you were seeing these guys from companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic in the early yeah. days. Like they were trying to tell governments what blockchain was in 2015 and 2016 and why they should be paying attention. And then I'm watching the same governments then, the ones that paid attention, going, we've just had a billion-dollar seizure. And I'm thinking, we've never seen a billillion-dollar seizure in regular process yeah, of crime anything, yeah, ever yeah, in like yeah. 20 or 30 years. And then yeah. you started to see these stats where like, it was like 20 to 1. They were recovering more. So then I started to think, but if someone could just pay a bit more attention to helping governments and private companies with the infrastructure to sort of unlock the potential and that asset recovery said, that's the bit that sort of we, we became obsessed with. Well, let's talk about asset reality then. And I've sort of stolen some, some wording from your website. Please. So it says asset reality is an asset recovery as a service. What does that mean? When when we went through the the sort of the, the accelerator program at Techstars, they, they teach you about um, you know, the, the different types of products and services that you know, people sell. So very commonly, if you're using HubSpot or Salesforce or Dropbox or any of these things, or Chainalysis or TRM or Elliptic, they're all software as a service. Mm -hmm. And when we had that described to us, it was about, it's this solution. So when we think of like a sort of cliche marketing phrase, we're sort of thinking that most governments and most insolvency practitioners and liquidators a lot of the time there are those that are incredibly experienced and know their stuff and there's others that it's their first case or it's the first time in the jurisdiction or it's a new mm -hmm. you know a new political party that's that's been brought in so we wanted to present ourselves as an asset recovery as a service so it might be that you need assistance in the investigation phase you might need training you might need you no know, legislation review you might need actual seize that boots on the ground or you might need someone actually putting a hammer down and selling the item or connecting you with a Christie's or a Sotheby's or a Wilson's or a John Pye or whoever it might be. Um, so we just thought we could be that off the shelf solution. And that's sort of what we're what we're rolling out currently. So you're like a, a one-stop shop. People need it as a service and you can go, right, we can either do it for you, put you in the right direction, whatever it may Hotels. be. Hotels.com for seized assets, I've been told. <laughs> Uber for- Who told you that? <laughs> exactly, yeah, my mum. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna carry on stealing from the website just to, to, to go through some of the wording. So it says, the growth of digital assets is also the growth of criminal efforts. The recovery, seizure and custody of those digital assets saw a significant shift from what was once an obscure backroom effort to a tech-driven asset recovery management workflow. Asset Reality facilitates a seamless asset recovery solution for law enforcement while making crypto customer service a turnkey solution for compliance-conscious firms. So bearing that in mind, in a nutshell, what does Asset Reality do and what service does it provide? Because there's mention of law enforcement, turnkey solutions... Well, I can't, uh, you put me under a lot of pressure now with those fabulous words from Mr. <laughs> Shannon, um, the, uh, in terms of our description. The, the, the simple sort of nutshell way to think about it is that we have an incredibly analog process that is absolutely reliant on spreadsheets, phone calls, like faxes, mm -hmm. and you have this asset recovery sector that is a little bit 80s, 90s in terms of decade. And then you have the emergence of things like digital assets. So we have people finding crypto assets, 
with incredibly technical blockchain analytic tools yeah. and then managing that portfolio with an Excel spreadsheet and going to court and sitting outside court with a calculator, literally. I've seen people with an iPhone with a calculator sort of going one Bitcoin at today's price equals one Ethereum at today's price and putting that in, in their court submission or their credit. I, I've been there, I've done that. But everyone has. Yeah. So you just have this joined up and when we talk about the background there's just little pockets and little sort of green shoots of this incredible best practice we see in, in law enforcement around the world and this when we talk about asset recovery remember for, for people that don't know you could be a you could be someone in a, a big four company you could be an insolvency practitioner mm. or a liquidator or a government investigator you're all using proceeds of crime act legislation and yeah. that's pretty common around the world so when we think about our target audience they're they're all effectively asset recovery practitioners you could be a law firm you could be a receiver you could be a liquidator you could be a government agent so i think one of our challenges amongst many um, one of our biggest challenges is is trying to sort of demonstrate that there's so much technology at play that we take for granted every single day and we've just never turned it to asset recovery. And then with digital assets and what we see with, with, we'll inevitably talk about, about scams involving crypto, there's an additional layer of things that we can do just more effectively and more efficiently. Yeah. So it's kind of like turning up to, we, we often feel like you know, when a, when a sort of Gordon Ramsay turns up to the, the restaurant that's having a bad day and everyone's yeah. running around with their hair on fire. It's a case of going, you know that that can just go over there and maybe this system that only costs you know, X a month or there's a free tool that can do that. Like, like simple things like um, a government agency seizing vehicles. Like there's a free tool and there's free API access that it can put in the registration of the vehicles and it'll backfill all of the details. But you've still got someone sitting somewhere putting in a registration and then looking up the details or just little things that, and then the blockchain is the most easiest to open ledger in the world to yeah, yeah, yeah. type in the blockchain address and it'll pull everything through. And yeah. people just, I think that's what it is. It's, it's it, updating the law enforcement. It's, up, it's basically educating, updating all of the relevant parties. Well, it, it's sort of it's sharing best practice. It's not that anyone, some people are, are like willfully getting it wrong and turning a blind eye. Let's be really clear about that. Yeah. Um, but others, it's, it's a case, it's easy when you know how and, yeah, and, and you don't know what you don't know. It's like before WhatsApp, you didn't have WhatsApp and you didn't know WhatsApp existed and you were probably paying for text messages. Oh, or, so much money or, for text messages. No, yeah. Negotiating for a better deal with your mobile <laughs> provider. And then a friend probably went, have you got WhatsApp? Like I never saw an advert for WhatsApp. It just appeared. Someone told me and someone used it and that was it. Yeah. So we're trying to just at least help people find those little bits of low-hanging fruit. We're not going to solve the world's problems uh, no, this year, but there's certainly people that you can go in and say, do you know by just like doing this, like your counterparts are doing, you're going to save. And I think the big difference between private sector and public sector, remember as well, is that if you're a private sector receiver or anyone in that sector, you could be personally liable if you get it wrong. Public sector, it's more of a reputational thing, yeah, but 100%. you're not likely to be held to account in the same way. Whereas if you're a liquidator or a trustee and you make a mistake and creditors find out, at best, you'd be getting kicked out of your office. At worst, you could be you know, needing yeah. you needing your services to, to defend your actions. So, is it a matter of if we've, we've talked it's about a very big nutshell, by the way? Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, we've, we've spoken about sort of education. So is it fair enough that people think that maybe you're a consultancy service? I think that it was a big challenge for us because we were coming from, like a lot of us were actual consultants. I literally was a consultant for the, the UNODC. Most of the people we hired from ex-law enforcement backgrounds were all consultants. And the argument in one of our very first investors sort of perfectly helped us rephrase things to say, if you currently work in AI at the moment, everything you do is sort of R&D. 
and everything you're doing is professional services mm -hmm. that allows you to understand the user's problems to then develop tools and solutions for it. So when we think about it, it's just because our industry has lots of existing consultants who only consult and they come in and say, your systems are broken. Here's 25 guidelines and recommendations on what you should do going forward. And off they go. And uh, no spoiler alert on my own political opinions, but kind of like Brexit. No, it's like going, here's what you should do. And then when people vote on it, no, people run away and yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll leave you to it um, type thing. So with, that was what often happened in, in the uh, in asset recovery and that's in the consultancy sector in general. There's not many consultants who come in and say, here's what the issues are. And also now we're actually going to hang around and we're going to deliver a solution for you. We're going to work with you for the next two or three yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. So, so for us, one of the things we have, we, we treat our sort of consultancy side as it's more professional services that allow us to sort of get people the services they need. So a good example is we've just started working with the, the, the country of Jamaica. Um, and Jamaica, for example, they want us to assist with you know, uh, training law enforcement. They want us to assist with you know, assessing where they are from a seized asset management point of view, because that's really important with things like reviews from yeah. FATF. And then it's also, but also what is the legacy? No point having someone coming in, doing a you know, couple of nice shiny training courses and giving them a certificate and then leaving them to it and then not giving people that continual support. What you want is... You want someone coming in saying, here's what's wrong with your books and records, and here's some really good accountancy software and a support helpline for the next 24 months. So we're trying to do that with asset recovery, help them identify the problems, find out what the solutions are, but then leave an infrastructure behind so that as people retire and people change jobs and people move on, there's a there's a bedrock of sort of infrastructure that's left behind. That's so our main. Our it's point. a lot. It's definitely a longer term vision, right? It's not oh, right, just a quick. So, yeah, this is yeah, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. this. Honestly, this will take decades to to overturn. But what we're hoping is we'll start to see those little sort of like key markers and milestones. I mean, if one percent is the current recovery rate globally, like we've got a big pool to swim in mm -hmm. to be able to say, well, can we get it to two? By this year, double it, yeah, and that's it. So we're like, we're incredibly, literally, the name asset reality comes from being a realist about yeah, things, yeah, yeah. Um, and because in um, sort of uh, podcast and presentation bingo, which um, we, we've all done a lot of panels, I used to constantly, I used to keep saying, um, and the reality is, and the reality is, and the reality, literally, someone called you out on it, and yeah, and I literally on my when I when I was sharing my screen, my screensaver was the, the William A. Ward quote about uh, I know an optimist and a pessimist and a realist. And no, I think the optimist you know, hopes for the hopes for the, the, the winds to change. Yeah. And the the, uh, the pessimist sort of complains about the wind and the realist just adjusts the sails and just gets on with it. So for us, it was around, we know asset recovery is broken. We have a solution. We're realistic that there is some, again, controversially, some people that don't want things to be fixed. Yeah, in some jurisdictions that's part of it. As yeah. well, a little bit and... Um, uh, but I think that we we know that because we've seen the best practice from others, we can't take the credit for this. We have seen government agencies well, way before our time, um, IRS criminal investigation, having these incredible billion dollar seizures frequently um, that we thought if we can just capitalize on that momentum uh, and get involved in that sort of sector and sort of try and leave behind an infrastructure, then maybe we can sort of move the needle a little bit. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think at this stage, um, it's worth considering the 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 journey of the victim, um, because you have a victim support yep. function. What is it? How does it work? What's the experience for victims? Harrowing uh, would be the word I would use for, for victims and in, in, in from a crypto perspective in particular. Again, I'll disclaim this by saying, um, 
uh, sort of nod my tip my hat to sort of my co-founder Nick Furno. There's no such thing as crypto crime. Um, if someone if someone steals your car, um, no, it's theft. Yes, it involves an, an, yeah. an automobile or a motor vehicle. Um, and I think there's a badging of sort of crypto scams. They're scams. They're, they're frauds, they're scams, they're crimes. They just happen to involve digital assets. But what we notice is with things like the horrifically titled sort of pig butchering. and Such other an things, ugly term to use. It's, it's, I don't know who came up with that. But, but Well, the, there's an interesting sort of argument around this. I hate the term fraudster because fraudster no conveys that like no jaunty, no no swag bag and it's sort of yeah. where it's like no it's criminal it's, yeah. it's yeah. a hardened criminal and uh, no these are sophisticated targeted attacks this is not someone sort of knocking your door and as you turn it around and they grab the purse um, and I think with pig butchering it's horrific but it actually if if it sounds horrific like dig into it pig butchering goes which is a slight segue goes a step further because not only are there scammers targeting you to deceive you, you know, get more money out of you, literally fatten you up, build up trust, and then pull the plug. But nine, in many of the cases, I'm not saying nine times out of 10, but in many of the reported cases, the scammers have been tricked and are human trafficked into those positions. So they oh, turn up- Extra layer oh, of there's, complexity. There's an incredible report by, by Vice, I think Wired Magazine did one as well. Erin um, West is the person on um, who you want to follow. She's the authority in this globally on LinkedIn. She's a prosecutor from Santa Clara, and she is on a one-woman crusade to sort of to, to raise and seize, educate, and disrupt is her tagline. Um, and like pig butchering, there was a um, an expose done in Cambodia. People go overseas thinking they're getting a better job and they're getting a slick sales job. Yeah. They surrender their passports. They go in, and then it turns out you're phoning these people on this day and you're doing this, and it's a very aggressive boiler room. And it's not a boiler room fraud. It's the pig butchering cases. So then if you try and leave, it's like, well, those last 35 calls you just made, you're a criminal and you're going to get arrested by the local authorities. So if you don't shut up, sit on the phone and keep doing these cases. And there's like, there's been horrific reports of the suicides. So the scammers, it's not just as black and white that the scammers are the bad guys um, in pig butchering. But just, just in terms of pig butchering, because people might not necessarily understand what pig butchering is means it's essentially a scam whereby uh the scammer let's just use that phrase for the moment the scammer uh starts interacting with someone usually um deceived or vulnerable um over a period of time uh they coax uh, that individual into providing uh, money again a lot of trust is built up the idea is that they're fattening them up um, an example of that may be where someone asks someone to invest in a certain amount of money, uh, it, it doubles in its return, so they ask for a little bit more, trust is built, and, and after a period of time, quite a lot of uh, they money. They actually give them the money back. We've seen cases where they've actually authorized really? withdrawals when they have a really big fish on the line, so that yeah. people actually go and buy themselves a Rolex, or they do a down payment on a car, and yeah. they their first couple of thousand, they've actually got four or 5,000 in hard cash that they've withdrawn from a bank. And that's the point of fattening them up, right? That's the whole idea. So although it's an ugly term, it, 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 it's actually pretty, pretty, relevant, pretty yeah. good. So someone's a, a victim, say, of pig butchering. Maybe they've lost half a million, million pounds worth, whatever it may be of, let's just say, for example, Bitcoin. What happens? They call you, what's their process? Yeah, so, so when, we, when we started to think about victim support, it was very much an, an organic um, and like unintentional consequence of the world that we work in because we were effectively putting ourselves out there as it goes back to this ill-defined asset recovery world. Yeah. If you say I work in asset recovery, you're going to attract victims who've lost assets to recover their assets. And you can't say, no, I, well, actually I you know, provide you no know, software solutions to corporate clients. So it was yeah. something that we sort of, we, we were actually proactively approached by a number of um, Web3 um, and, and crypto companies, uh, wallet providers, people who have customers interacting with them saying, I clicked on a bad link. 
Um, I thought I was interacting with my my wallet, or yeah. I accepted a software update, um, right through to the very you know the, the very targeted attacks where they get a WhatsApp message and then you get into that sort of scam, mm. um, back and forward. But the end result is always the same: you lose your assets, you lose your money. Um, and what was happening was people were just. I go back to my earlier point about the asset recovery system being a little bit, a lot uh, broken. So if you imagine a victim of a crime, let's say Matt loses his digital assets today. Matt goes to the police and says, I've lost £5,000 worth of digital assets. Mm -hmm. And the police will then say, great, we'll take a crime reference number. We will report this. We've got all your details on file and we'll pass this up the line. Now, that's the same as going and saying, I dropped my diamond ring in the street or someone grabbed my watch in the middle of Piccadilly Circus mm -hmm. and ran that way. I mean, you, you wouldn't expect the police to say, you no, know, to jump the desk and say, that's it, we're going to shut down London. Yeah. We're going to close <laughs> yeah. the bridges. Until we find it. Yeah, yeah we're not going to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah, I, used, I used the example at a, at a recent conference where I said, it's like showing my age. It's like there's an, there's an episode of Friends where Joey loses a diamond ring because the duck eats the ring or a goose eats the ring. Yeah. And he calls NYPD and says, I've lost my friend's engagement ring. And he says, once we solve all the other crimes <laughs> in Manhattan, yeah, yeah. we'll get right yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think like that that makes light of it. But people people have this expectation and, and victims were coming to us saying, I've been to the police and they can't help me. Um, and again, I always try and encourage people to sort of manage expectations. What would you think if you interacted with an unregulated sector, you're in a world that you maybe haven't got a lot of experience you're clicking on links that you're unsure of. Now, again, and, and please, I'm, I'm, I'm separating out the very, very highly targeted, sophisticated attacks. There's a lot of scams that we see that there were so many red flags, and that's the real pain for me is that yeah. you see, I don't want to say accountability as if I'm, I'm victim shaming and victim blaming. I've already been called into that not once. Um, but if you know, Elon Musk at gmail.com sends you an email and yeah. asks you for your recovery seed yeah. and you send him your recovery seed, there was a chance there to, to, to avoid that and not be a victim. Yeah. But then we also see people you know, who are interacting with staking protocols and you ask them, what's your crypto experience? Oh, no, someone on a WhatsApp group told me I should set up a, a wallet and I should... And like, I wouldn't walk into a modern art gallery and just randomly buy a modern if I didn't know. So, sorry, sorry I'm, I'm going off topic. No, 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 no. But, but um, as expected, this was, I, was, I was warned at the beginning of this podcast, stay on point. Um, but so when you get this whole, there's a thousand different ways that, that victims were turning up on our website, on social media channels, on messages on LinkedIn. Because there's a little button in there on your website if there's a bit well, of a problem. That, that was as a result of just organically getting so much inbound. And then we were working with a number of large corporate crypto clients in the background, People, it's in the public domain, people like Consensus and MetaMask and um, uh, Phantom uh, Web3 Foundation. We were already working. So it started just organically. We have a customer. Yeah. They need some help. They've reported it to the police and they're, they, they can't do anything about it. They've got a crime reference number. Um, they've went to uh, a blockchain analytic company or they've went to a law firm or they've went to a civil recovery practitioner. Yeah. And like I say, the, these processes cost money. There's court applications. If you're in that bucket where it's a thousand pounds or less. Like, is it, it may not even be economically viable to pursue that. So you had a lot of frustrated people with nowhere else to go and they're listening to podcasts and what they're hearing is, it's the most traceable asset in the world. We can see everything on chain. We can track your funds and see they're sitting on an exchange. Mm. So you've got this mixed messaging for victims that 
amazing tools. Asset recovery prospects are really high. People like me saying billions of dollars are being seized all around the world. They're going, great. Get my thousand pounds back. You can't get my Rolex, but you can get those Bitcoins back yeah. because they're digital and they're traceable and you can see what exchange they're at. And then you have to remind people that it still has to go through the same creaky, broken, fragile asset recovery process. Mm -hmm. Court orders, production orders, disclosure orders, all the things you know much better more than I do about. And then and there's, and there's hard costs associated with those. So we started to launch this sort of victim support solution to at least give people a soft landing and to be able to say, almost put an arm around the shoulder and say, you've lost 2000 pounds. Like if you were my brother or sister, I'd be telling you to write it off. Yeah. I mean, report the loss, of course, but if you don't have insurance, and there, and there are new digital asset insurance providers coming onto the market, but as it stands now, if you don't have insurance and it's a small loss and you can't afford to appoint a civil recovery practitioner, chalk this one up to experience. And, and that uh, happens. That's, a lot of people say to me, that's just the cost of dealing with this industry. And although I have mixed feelings about whether that's yeah. right or not, to some extent it is well, because it's unregulated. That there, there, there isn't a lot to be done unless, to some extent, you have some money where you can go and trace it and cover it. Or but, the but there, there, there's accidents in every sector. I mean, there's skydiving yeah, accidents every day. There's bungee jumping accidents yeah. every day. There's no... no, no People drink, you know, people drink alcohol and injure themselves. It doesn't stop the world drinking or this is why we have speed limits. This is why we have airbags. You know, the people get themselves into bother. But I think that from the, the victim's perspective, just giving people access to information because the, the other point I wanted to make, which is horrifying and worse in digital assets than anything else, is this like re-victimization. Yep. Because you live in a, you know, you, you, we live in a digital world. First thing you do when you lose your digital assets, you go onto Reddit, you go onto Twitter, you go onto all the different platforms Home and research. Discord, yeah. and you go, help, I've lost my assets. And then the scammers come at you again. And they say, Matt, we're very, very hard. Sorry to hear about that. What address did you send it to? Give us the details. Oh, I can see your $1,000. And if you pay $100 gas fees, I'll get it back for you. Yep. I'm a white hat hacker. I've had clients do that. And people do this. Yep. So this is why we felt the need to sort of plug a gap in the market to say, we're an asset recovery company. We're building infrastructure. But we have these incredibly talented sort of men and women on our team who have carried a crypto investigations. Nick wrote the book, um, Investigating Cryptocurrencies. Um, so we thought we can we can build something that gives people a bit more support. Now, what's wonderful to see is over just even in the last six to 12 months, we've seen the launch of lots of different products and service offerings that are now collaborating more with the exchanges, with courts, with civil recovery. You have more reporting functionalities from trusted entities. You've got things like you know, chain abuse and crawl and those initiatives have all been launched. So you've got reputable players now coming into the sector. You've got without sort of blowing smoke for you. You've got your own personal results. You've got all these legal firsts coming in. You've got the, the, the GTs of the world mm -hmm. heavily involved. You've got all of these success stories coming in that what we're hoping in is in another couple of years, the entire ecosystem is very, very different looking. I'm guessing that exchanges will start to self-regulate a little bit more and we'll see after a few hefty fines, no doubt, we'll probably find that if you lose your $1,000, certain companies and certain exchanges you might even have a shot of getting made whole quickly. And I, yeah. someone looked at me sort of odd when I said that a couple of days ago. And I was like, well, it's the same with the Amex chargeback and Visa chargeback. It's about confidence, right? It's, it's about quite, people wanting it's, to, it's to brand, engage. It's brand protection. You're telling me that on the metaverse, if Chanel have a brand and you lose some of your assets, Chanel are going to say, tough. 
Whereas in the metaverse, it's like, well, no, you want to associate the brand Chanel with, with everything in the real world. Yeah. So, so I, I do think we will head towards a chargeback style situation and they'll just charge you higher transaction fees to, to offset the cost of that and sort of... I thought one of the exchanges tried that, didn't Coinbase... Well, it may have been a fraudulent email, but... Somebody, <laughs> it, possibly. It, it was, but... Did I, Brad Armstrong email you and say he gets your money back? <laughs> said it was him personally, yeah. Uh, I thought that was something that they were going to do. They were going to try and do a chargeback where I think it was like, if it was like... 30 grand or something, then they would consider it. But again, it might have just been a branding ploy. It may well have just I know, been. I know, I, I do truly believe that people are just probably, there's not enough data yet to make a decision like yeah. that. You think you can't really pivot from that. You can't say, I'll give you, you no, know, I'll give you cents on the dollar back or on your losses and then have you no know, bankruptcy situation because yeah. the scammers figure out a way to ham. So I think, again, and I, I understand why the companies have to do it, like that is years away like that is not going to be now maybe someone will do it in a novel way but to see it to get to the position and i think this is why it's great having big brands coming in having the paypals and the mastercards the more the establishment who know what customers expect come into this space mm -hmm. like i think i've actually made it i might have discussed this with you in the past a, a great example i can't i can't credit the person because i forget who it was but they talked about the fact that this is like like Wozniak and Jobs in their garage with a, an original Mac One computer. Like that's where this sector is yeah. right now. It's really, really rough. It's like, no, it's it's the Wright Brothers airline. It's not easy yet, no, a hundred years later. Yeah, yeah. It's we're seeing the very beginnings of a very rough and ready Wild West. Yeah. Um, and it's gonna be unrecognizable in five or ten years. But right now, it is a wild west. Well, if you even think about it now, from my experience, you, you know, how many years ago when we first met, you'd write to an exchange and they wouldn't really bother responding or they wouldn't deal with it. And now, obviously, because they want to increase their reputation, they want to be seen as a legitimate source to, f for the public to deal with, they're now complying with court orders. They, want, they don't want to be seen in the paper as as uh, in contempt of court. Yeah, the, the sure, that sort of yeah, stuff. The shady. And look, again, all of the good, the things that we often roll our eyes about are actually quite good for the sector. I mean, the celebrity endorsements. The, now, <laughs> famously, he says, no, <laughs> but, no, I'm sure Tom Brady and Giselle would have sort of different thoughts on that with FTX. Mm. But I mean, having like a Ronaldo at a Binance, having like Tezos and having others like sponsoring football clubs. Yeah. Again, people go, huh, FTX. Well, that's what, that's like, there's one bad bank doesn't mean that the Tradfi. No well, traditional is finance bad. is famous for being clean and... Uh, <laughs> there's no such thing as fiat money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I wouldn't let, no, there's a counterfeiting. No, someone said that, oh, but, but there's lots of scam tokens. I mean, do you know, there's more fake Rolexes in production in the world than there is real Rolexes. There's more fake Louis Vuitton bags in circulation yeah. than real Louis Vuitton brand. It does, these, are just, these are just industry issues. And I think that's where I really enjoy working in this sector because we don't just deal with digital assets, we deal with actual assets. And we see this, everyone thinks they're unique problems to them. You know, we have these issues in digital asset recovery. Going, these have been things that have been talked about for 20 years. Yeah. You know, money laundering and scams. And you know, the art market's had that for 100 years. Luxury goods have had that for a hundred years. Yeah. So it, it's really interesting. But I, so I think a lot of the, we're different, but we're the same. I think a lot of the lessons that we've seen in other sectors will solve a lot of the, the problems. And again, we're at that like Mac one stage where we have everything's just new and raw, but, and if you don't know what you're doing, it could go horribly wrong. Yeah. As, as, as ultimately what we sort of and that was supposed to take it back that's why we set up the victim support but people just really needed, nicely done that well, I was, was going to try and bring it I was like a Billy Connolly that was really good it was a Billy Connolly look um, so fundamentally I keep going back to if my if my parents were involved in digital assets and lost 
you just want to have one like trusted lighthouse that people can go to. And maybe in, maybe in six months time, maybe in a year's time, we're not saying that we're going to be the best victim support company in the world. There's lots of excellent companies that are only focused on victim yeah, support, yeah, yeah. entire new sectors. So I would love to be in a position that we are only dealing with the infrastructure behind asset recovery because where do we want to get to for victims? Victims should be able to walk into a police station and say, I've lost my thousand pounds with a Bitcoin. And the police say, no problem. We'll get one of our guys right onto it. That's not happening right now. So it's not happening there. with real assets. It doesn't happen with real assets. But, I, but, the difference is, but the difference is with digital assets, we can shoot off a notification to an exchange the same day. Yeah, We yeah, can yeah, yeah. get a court order the same day. So I think, and we've seen with FTX, the speed at which digital asset recovery can move is nothing like old asset recovery. Yeah, fair so enough. I think we can dream. Well, let's try and talk a little bit about your work in the public sector because, uh, again, flitting through your website, it's public sector, private sector. Let's tackle the former first. Public sector stuff, how do you help law enforcement? It's around infrastructure. So if you think about um, what do the, the public sector, we say public sector, we predominantly mean law enforcement. Law enforcement and authorities around the world. Yeah. So ultimately for them, the, the pursuit of asset recovery you know, tackles a number of things. It gets more money back into society. It gets more money into fund law enforcement. It gets more money to good causes. So there's just really noble pursuit around asset recovery. And But a lot of government agencies, again, park blockchain and digital assets. When computers first came out, law enforcement, what did they need? They needed someone that could do digital forensics on devices. You now had these smartphones and laptops and mobile yeah. things that, no, you weren't seizing, um, seizing a big server anymore. You could have no 50 gig worth of data on a small handheld device. Yeah. So governments then needed tools and training on how to deal with this new emerging threat when the internet first came out. Same sorts of things. So again, we can't sit here and say, oh, this is unique, this concept of the support we're providing. It's been done decade after decade after decade. You know, cars were first invented. Law enforcement needed training on how to deal with cars um, and how to get their own cars yeah. and get their own tools. So it's, it's kind of that playbook where we want to enable them to have the training they need, the tools they need, the legislation they need. Yeah. So it's a bit of a... Are you drafting a, legislation? We're not drafting, we're reviewing existing legislation. Okay. So we do that in the sense of Again, there's three, again, preaching the converted here, but there's three or four sort of systems around the world from the civil and common law and all the different sort of variations. But ultimately, you could probably put 150 countries in the world into the same three models or mm -hmm. four models. So all we try and do is say, well, if you're a Balkan country and you're struggling with this particular issue, here's one of your neighbors that have made some modifications. A Why don't they do that already? Do they not talk to each other? There's lots of interagency cooperation with things like the CARA network, the Camden Asset Recovery Interagency Network that sits in Europol. It allows people to informally ask for help. But if you think about just how fast, imagine when you try and ring your own local council to get something done. Never going to do that. There's lots of layers of Never bureaucracy. Exactly. And there's lots of people and people just naturally move around positions okay, and they fair. go to the private sector. So what tends to happen with law enforcement is one of the biggest challenges law enforcement have is brain drain. I say this, um, I, mean, I left law enforcement after nine years um, because quite traditionally, if you have a semi-interesting career in the public sector, you've done a couple of good cases, you've got a good reputation, there's a million different reasons, people can make more money in the private sector. And, yeah. and that is, that's the sad reality that affects all law enforcement around the world. The Bank of England just announced the head of CBDCs. And I think the salary is like a third of what the same person would get in the private sector for example. The same go. with crypto investigators, trying to recruit crypto investigators for a third of what they would earn in the private sector. So there's always this challenge that law enforcement is unfortunately under-resourced and understaffed 
And again, I say this um, as a supporter of law enforcement, expected to do more with less. That has always been the classical issue. Yeah. And then you're, as law enforcement, something like digital assets, you still have to go through all of your information gateways. You still have to you still have to run with a you know a, a bowling ball and sort of you no know, or a bloody a great boulder tied behind you. Whereas criminals you no know, no borders and they they move fast. So when we think about our public sector support, it's really just enabling them based on where they are in their asset recovery journey with the different tools that they need. So some might be on the FATF grey list yeah. and they need a complete overhaul from top to bottom. Others might be incredibly advanced agencies that are looking at solving particular problems around you know, managing seized assets that they want to use for you know, illicit transactions. It might be you know, getting into undercover cases. There could be a, a, a lots of different reasons um, where how you interact with seized assets, social reuse of seized assets is a big thing in many jurisdictions, not so much in the UK. Um, where they'll they'll take a, a building that's been seized, they can't sell it because it's ex-mafia, mm -hmm. and they want to use it as for a charity. But they need, need to make sure that there isn't corruption and who gets appointed with that asset. Right. So, so that, again, it comes back to what we said before, it's the whole process. Yeah, the chief of police doesn't need a Ferrari, for right. example. But but, he, sure. but but the legislation allows him to have a car. So again, and we've seen, so, so for, uh, yeah, us is really just coming into seeing what they need and trying to equip them with the tools that they require or best practice or training, or sometimes it's just connecting them with another entity that's done it before. Yeah. And just sort of helping sort of be a private diplomats. Who are you predominantly working with? What agencies? So right now we're currently, we have a couple of pilots ongoing with the Seychelles, Jamaica, and the Belgian government. To really, have we, as we committed Techstars, um, sort of January 2022, we now have to go through, and again, I'm going to sound like a, a cliche tech startup, but we're going through our sort of beta sort of <laughs> yeah. mode now where when you're trying to build a platform or a, any sort of case management tool, no, you're as good as your sort of reputation if you get mm -hmm. something wrong. So this is not something that we can afford to rush um, effectively. So we're now working with these government agencies because it gives us a really good spread of you no know, uh, busy sort of European hub that has a long track record. Mm -hmm. My first digital asset seizure in mainland Europe was with the Belgian government. So it's it's a um, it's an right. agency I've worked okay. with very long, uh, for a very long time. Um, Seychelles really interesting because Seychelles has a hub of cryptocurrency activity. I mean, number uh, well, some two, exchanges are registered. Well, two, 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 two of the top ten exchanges in the world yeah. are registered in Seychelles, and the biggest one in the world is allegedly or has a lot of connections with Seychelles. So, from our point of view, that was a really important strategic partner to work with because they have a very, very unique. Sorry, not unique. They have a. Particular, particular set of challenging circumstances that is replicated in places like Cayman, BVI, Jersey Guernsey's Isle of Man's, yeah, where, yeah. where you have small population, which equals small proportionate law enforcement, which equals even less budgets and tools in many cases. But then you have these major financial institutions that have a footprint there. I mean, what happens when you have a crypto exchange in Papua New Guinea? When you send in an international request as a lawyer in London and you want information out of the exchange registered there mm -hmm. and it's on the desk of someone who doesn't even have basic training in crypto assets, yeah. let alone have a blockchain analytic tool. That might serve them well to not have that if they're... Not if you're the victim. That's not the if you're the victim, no, but if you're one of the exchanges, it may serve you well. And this is and this is why we exist, yeah. so that we can we can sit somewhere like Seychelles or others and say, well, if you have these requests coming in, we can assist and support and it's, this is all about international rule mm -hmm. of law. We all want to stop you no know, terrorist financing. We all want to stop sort of international money laundering. So for us, we're doing these experiments with a couple of interesting jurisdictions um, to just really sort of figure out, we don't want to make assumptions about what are the tools that they need. So for us, it's very much sort of R&D testing mode at the minute.
And talking about what I'm going to call private sector, that's sort of my world. So someone comes to you and they go, do you know, the police aren't doing the job I'd like um, and or they're being slow um, and I'd like some private advice. How do you interact with that? What sort of stuff do you do? So fundamentally, what we're building is a, a platform for asset recovery services. So you could be someone that requires no support in an investigation stage. You could be a asset recovery practitioner that wants to seize assets and you need to create a digital asset you know, wallet to you know, actually store your assets. Mm -hmm. You could be dealing with physical assets and you need to track and trace those and have some sort of inventory system mm -hmm. or you want to be able to actually sell your seized assets and do all the auditing and things. And So if you imagine, to go back to our earlier point, we're trying to sort of sit in the middle and be that provider of services. So if someone in the private sector comes along and says, we need your assistance with the investigation phase, if it's not us, we can connect you with a partner. If you're a private sector practitioner and or a member of the public comes to us and says, I've been scammed, I need help. But then we'll have a network of partners like yourselves and Shoesmiths. Mm -hmm. It could be our work with Grant Thornton. It could be that a MetaMask user has come to us and said, I need help. I need no well, That's how it works, right? Because um, so I, I know that you partnered. Is it partnered probably the right word for MetaMask? Uh, yeah, we're, 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 yeah, we're one of their providers. So they have a system whereby if a victim, if someone misappropriates their funds or they are a victim of some sort of fraud, MetaMask have a relationship with you guys. Yeah. What does that relationship look like? As in not necessarily... Um, uh, how you deal with with MetaMask, but the the, the victim yeah, the victim journey. journey. Yeah. So if you imagine a, a sort of life without companies like Asset Reality, I mean, if you're you're a tech company focused on your core business, mm. and these unfortunate incidences where someone has you know, lost their their assets, I think it's important that people know that that's not the fault of the brand. We often get people, I think, very famously. Um, uh, I think it's in the public domain. So because I think I'll not say the actual name, but a very high profile celebrity, high profile because they actually made a movie about this person's life. Um, I was going to give some hints, but I'm not. Um, uh, I'm, I'm convinced in the public domain. But anyway, a uh, very high profile American uh, celebrity lost lost some assets, uh, and let's just say they have a particular uh, wallet with a particular sort of um, private sector company they'll go online and call like the private sector company and say, I lost my assets because of this scam and mm -hmm. you need, you guys need to help me. Mm -hmm. That's the same as being sold a fake Rolex and shouting at Rolex for not doing more. I shouldn't shout at uh, Rolex for well, it. Yeah, because they're the original, exactly. But this <laughs> is what we get. We get people saying, I had a MetaMask wallet. I clicked, I clicked on a bad link. I sent purpose, I voluntarily sent my assets to a different scammer who I thought was MetaMask, nothing to do with MetaMask whatsoever. Mm. But naturally, your touch point as a victim, when you figure out, I've actually been- It's tricked. your first port of call. MetaMask, what can they do? And you go back and say, can you help? Yeah. So, and then you have these incredibly you know, skilled technical people that run this really interesting company, but they're not asset recovery practitioners. So of course they can look at analytic tools, they could use on-chain explorers, they will know more than anybody about you know, crypto scams and attack mm -hmm. vectors and all of these things in cyber, from a cybersecurity point of view. But what a lot of victims need when they go back to our traditional victim, you know, a thousand pounds or less, it's like, what are my asset recovery options? And how do I stop becoming a victim again? Yeah. How do I immediately secure my wallet? How do I do a lot of those things? So the service we provide is to be that asset recovery partner so that if Matt, the crypto victim, comes to us, we can say, what's happened? Give us some information. Now, there's a lot of really interesting data in the background as well, because there could be that you're a victim one of a hundred people that's been in the same boat, yes. and there could be a potential class action case there. Um, there could be the opportunity that your assets, when they're traced, are sitting at a 
friendly cooperative exchange and there's a chance for recovery. Mm -hmm. But I have to disclaim all of this. In the year and a bit that we've been doing this, like over 90% of the victims are in the small category. I say small as in every loss is big for anybody, but economically compared to the cost of civil recovery, yep. appointing lawyers and doing all those good things. Yep. It, again, if you lost a 100 pounds watch, you wouldn't pay a private detective to go after it. So for us, it's really around signposting people to the right legal partners, yep. signposting people to how you can secure your wallet and do not let this happen again, and also being that central repository. And really where we probably add the most value is our, our sort of close working with government agencies. Now, we can't lobby on someone's behalf. That's just not possible. It's not, not allowed. But by us working with law enforcement partners, when people submit those reports, and we encourage people to submit reports to Action Fraud, IC3, yeah. chain abuse companies like that, this is blockchain data. The more you spray this information, the more you share this information, companies like Siberia, really interesting companies in the space that are almost broadcasting this data of your loss. Well, there's a chance that you could be sitting here Mount Gox style in three or four years time, finding out, ah, we actually have found some assets. And that's the point, it's about being patient, right? Because yeah. you may submit some information and actually as a victim, you're part of a much larger scam that gets unveiled years later. And, so you get always... your, and you get your assets back. Yep. And, and I think this is where we, literally where we probably do the most work is around the victim education piece. Because there always will be, there's been a lot of big high profile cases in the public domain where you know, multi-millionaires um, have lost digital assets and they have the ability to appoint you know, excellent private sector teams to go after their assets. But the vast majority of you know, ordinary sort of people um, don't, have that, uh, don't have those resources. So... Trying to be patient is a perfect way to describe it because, again, we get understandably <clears throat> emotional people contacting yep. us. I want my assets back today. And I have to, we have to be the bearer of bad news saying, if you left your handbag on the bus and it wasn't there when you got back, mm -hmm. or if you left your iPhone or your iPad on the passenger seat of your car and the window was smashed and your phone was gone in a busy urban area, what would your expectation of recovery be? And it's about, you need to bring it back to that. However, and the big but in all of this is, here's examples of where, when the wheels of civil recovery turn, yeah. and it takes three or four years, there is a immutable record that that was your loss. And blockchain analytics provides an immutable way that you could be connected. So if we give you a fast comparison, I was involved in um, uh, as the auctioneer of gold that was sold um, that was found as a result of the Hatton Garden investigation. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of unclaimed gold in that. So they, everyone knows the, the case, but for those that don't know, um, uh, burglars broke into a very famous sort of um, jewelry repository, stole lots of jewelry, police caught them, lots of mixed unlabeled jewelry is found, and then start this very manual exercise of, we have 29 diamond rings, who owns it? And people are coming forward saying, that's my diamond ring. And here's a photograph of me wearing it four months ago. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of cases where we can't really be sure. And like an insolvency is like a retention of title yeah, process yeah. where you're going through and trying to find out who's the legitimate owner. But with digital assets, by making that report, then you can demonstrate that it's your asset and you can demonstrate where it's been laundered through and all the things that have happened. And we're now seeing, and if we look at what is a comparative large asset recovery case, the Madoff case, I mean, it took years for people to get money back, but they got money back. And I think with Mount Gox, what's really interesting and unique with digital assets is that if you lose 100 X token and X token is worth a pound today, 
if in 10 years time, X token is worth a hell of a lot more. And this is what's happening with Mt. Gox. Yep. So Mt. Gox people lost at the time 100 Bitcoin, which would, at the time of the loss was like $30. And now, even after all the fees, everything was out, this is like a lottery win. People are getting contacted going, do you want your you know, 500 Bitcoin back? I think so, yes, please. I think I do. But how <laughs> yeah. many people never claimed at the time? Yeah. And we now have processes all around the world where people are scrambling three years later to say, that was mine. Oh God, I threw out the hard drive and I don't have access. I can't remember what the private key was or I don't have a copy of the seed yeah. word. Or... So yeah, I, I go back to your point about being patient, having resources as a victim, submitting the right paperwork, acknowledging your situation, but knowing that there may be sort of um, was it light at the end of the tunnel, there may be sort of a, yeah. there may be some there, there may be something in the distance. Um, and again, just to keep adding cliches, if you're not in, like if you don't, the amount of people that say, "Well, the police can't help me, you can't help me, so I'm not reporting it to anybody," well, then you're definitely not going to get anything back. Well, you're not you're not in the game at that point. I mean, it, it gets to some stages whereby people contact me and they say, "I've lost not in in the grand scheme of things, um, not an enormous amount of money." And I said, well, at this point, there's nothing economically uh, viable at this stage in terms of recovery privately. However, if you provide that to an investigator, they can monitor it. And if it becomes part of a larger scam, then you may be, as you said, involved in a class action or, or it may well be that the police pick up on it. So I suppose we both agree that it's, it's absolutely worth recording, disclosing to the police, private lawyers, whoever it may be. I'm going to move on a little bit because I know you've got some really interesting people working for you. Yeah. I want to know who some of these people are and what they do. Because you've got somebody who's working on Silk Road, mm -hmm. if I remember rightly. Um, you can talk a little bit about Nick, yeah. probably endlessly. <laughs> let's do that. Yeah, I see so you really put me on the spot now because there's like 25 people that sort of work with us at the minute. Okay, I'll limit it. Just talk about two, the two people that I've mentioned. Okay. This okay. is also amazing. <laughs> Those two people I mentioned. Yeah, so on the record, I love you all, but I'm being told that I have to mention Nick and Joanna. Yeah. Um, and obviously TJ sees all the big boats, so I can't I cannot mention TJ. TJ was actually the person that um uh the biggest Whitey Bulger. He was the person that sold all of the assets, the famous sort of Black Mass and Johnny Depp movie. Um, but basically we we have we have a really interesting mix of people um at Asset Reality where we said from the beginning that I've just noticed your fabulously snazzy socks, by the way. You Incredible. Can't, can't My God, he's, he's dying on his leg here. And <laughs> um, we, we, we've sort of, we purposely set out to understand the problems around the asset recovery sector. And the only way you can do that is by bringing in people who have actually been in the weeds and have worked these cases yep. and been involved and know the pain points. People who have been on planes halfway around the world, people who have seized digital assets before, way before anybody else could help you or give you a playbook or give you advice on what to do. And I suppose the, the two people that really embody that for digital assets in the company is uh, Nick Furno, my, my co-founder. Nick wrote the book, Investigating Cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. Nick was involved in the UK's first crypto seizure. I was the person that actually sold those assets and managed those assets. That's how we first actually met um, because I retained his services. I then went through his trading course. That's how Andrew Bowden-Brown, yeah. um, Andrew and I sat the same course. Um, Danny Haston then sat the course at the same time and Danny went off to, to join Chainalysis. So there's a nice sort of, um, we, all, we all sort of know each other and, and Nick was a common denominator in a lot of that. Um, so people like Nick who have actually trained, I think Nick's claim to fame is he's investigated over $21 billion worth of crypto related uh, digital investigations. He also has trained 
every financial investigator, I think, in the UK who's went through their crypto training. Mm-hmm. It's him and his company was was responsible for that. Um, and just just all around has this sort of globally accepted knowledge. I think you know, FinCEN, IRS, CI, all of these agencies, Nick was the guy they, they turned to for, for training. So he, he has done it probably more than a handful of people in the world um, have done. So we're incredibly lucky to have him helping us sort of shape as an advisor you know, what do we need to do? What do we need to think of? And also what's coming down the line? You know, as we start to get into things like mixers and what happens when governments want to use, you know, seized crypto in a drug deal or a drug bust? Mm-hmm. What tools can we develop around that? So there's really exciting things to come that I, I can't go into too much detail about at the minute. Um, Joanna, for example, Joanna Summers, um, who recently joined us, uh, Joanna managed the all of the seized Bitcoin in the, in the Silk Road case. So she was the person that um, ran the asset complex, um, the complex asset unit mm-hmm. at the US Marshals. So when we hear about that Ross Ulbricht and the Silk Road case and mm-hmm. those enormous like, no, in by today's prices, tens of billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin um, being sold at auction. That was Joanna and her department. So again, I think it gives us that credibility and you know, um, to the own horn. I obviously was uh, responsible for the the UK's first realization, yeah. um, uh, the first auction and uh, of crypto for the UK and for Belgium. So it just gives that additional credibility that it, when we say. We have done it with spreadsheets, and fundamentally, that is the sort of the the, the problem and the main mission that asset reality is tackling. Mm. You have this in massive incentivization piece where if we fix asset recovery, you and I will pay less tax. Like that is the be all and end all of this. We will literally have more money for society if we fix the problems that asset recovery has. Mm-hmm. So if we can bring in these practitioners that have the credibility because they have done it. They have done it in the weeds. They have done it with the spreadsheets. And you now have this world where really modern digital assets, incredibly technical um, investigation tools and forensic tools that can do all of these incredible things. But the world of asset recovery is still spreadsheets and phone calls. So for us, really, it's about taking these really experienced staff, giving them a blank sheet of paper and saying, what did you hate the most about your job? What was the most time-consuming and painful bit? Is this the interview process? This you is you coming in. <laughs> this is how you get in. Um, and that's and then once we find those people and you sort of figure out, and I know for me, the biggest problem I had was, what am I going to do with the seized crypto that I'm being asked to look after? How do I choose a custodian? Which custodian do I need? How do I have a custody solution that can cover all the different tokens I might come across? Mm. Who do I trust in the office with the private keys? Who do we bring in to do that and consult? There was just there was more questions than answers, um, and that was before even the digital assets. Who do you trust to you know to manage the mega yacht? Who do yeah, you trust yeah. to look after the Ferrari? So for for us, it just the the chronology around asset reality was that we literally set the company up in, in April twenty, lockdown, um, a little thing called COVID happened. Yeah. So it sort of forcibly put us down the path of digital assets. Like super practical point, governments weren't kicking in many doors during COVID. Physically couldn't, could you? Physically, yeah. physically couldn't. Only really certain like high profile cases could yeah, be yeah, could yeah. be actioned. So it meant that we, we've in, completely intended to sort of be the seized asset company and deal with all assets. And at its core, the problem we're solving is there is currently no case management system in the world of any level of sophistication that can allow governments to manage seized assets or asset recovery practitioners. Mm-hmm. Trustees and bankruptcies, liquidators, they can't access an inventory of their seized assets and then you think about digital assets, you can do extra things. You can generate wallet addresses. Yep. So our platform could generate a wallet address at a Coinbase, at a Gemini, at a Fidelity, or Fireblocks generated. You can get a deposit address on the same system. Or you could press, I want to liquidate. 
and then it hits an OTC trader and it actually gives you the money back into your... So there were, it was really just a case of there's lots of core issues we can solve and kill spreadsheets once and for all from a seized asset point of view. And then there's lots of enhanced things we can also do around digital assets. And that's fundamentally what the mission of asset reality is. I was going to ask you, your mission, it seems to be get rid of spreadsheets. And that may be a really, really good one. Yeah, well, it, it, when we look, we, we explain to like venture capitalists like what it is we're doing, and it's yeah. it's it's sort of reducing the amount of time spent on analog processes. Mm -hmm. And when you then figure out every government agency in the world, there's twenty thousand agencies in the U.S. alone, but you have this like perverse contrast of blockchain investigations yeah. and Excel spreadsheets and ledger wallets. Like there's just it's the, the epitome of just this like contrast. Um, of approaches. So if we're talking to you in two or three years time, I would hope that you know, everyone around the world is just using Asset Realities platform, SAM, named after my 16-year-old Jack Russell, who tragically died when I was a kid, um, uh, our seized asset manager platform. Um, and it is it is shamelessly stealing that uh, approach from like a hotels.com and Uber, where you've got that platform, like everything is a platform. Yeah, Amazon's yeah, yeah. a platform. Well, that, that, that's what people want, that's what investors we're want. used to. Yeah. I understand. We, we, we start this conversation with your background I think we finish it with a little bit more about you. I've got in my notes here that you've become an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Is that right? Yeah. So Tell for me about for, that. for um this this was my sort of smug sort of um I wanted to do my pretty woman moment because I didn't do I didn't do A levels or a degree. So when I, I left school at 16, um and yeah, that, that was that was a wonderful sort of moment when um I got sort of invited to be an associate fellow at Rusi. But basically, all the all sort of joking aside, um it's it shows you how little. <laughs> Actually, my dad said this. My dad said this to me. He said about, oh, there must be many people in that sector. That's what he said to you. <laughs> Just teasing, because there are there there are not. You get these incredible, um, you know, sort of academic sort of folks who know the legislation inside and out. Yeah, black people. But I I think that I'm in a unique position because I didn't go to university. So I went through a, a development program in HMRC. And it meant that by the time I qualified as a tax inspector, I was the youngest, I think I was the youngest tax inspector in the UK. And it wasn't that I was this like, you no know, wonderfully talented kid. I just, I just cut out everyone else was going to go the university for four or five years. Yeah. And I just had this, I had this head start on everybody. Um, but it meant that by the time I then joined the private sector, um, and then by the time I'd done the seized asset piece, I was in this really unique category around the world that I had been the investigator, worked in criminal and civil investigation, being the asset manager mm. and also was working for the United Nations. So I got to then go to all of these different countries and just gain perspective. Um, and that was then really sort of useful for the guys at Russia. I did a number of podcasts and, and events with them and I shout out to sort of um, Helena Wood, who's um, the, the asset recovery aficionado who I've known for a number of years and sort of was the, was the mastermind behind a lot of this. And it was, it was having that just context. And so people say there's challenges in Turkey and there's challenges in Australia and what's your comment on that? And you can just, you can talk to it um, a little bit. So it sounds so lofty because it's like the oldest think tank in the world. It's a fabulous organization. It sounds good. It's great for LinkedIn. It's yeah, wonderful LinkedIn. for LinkedIn. People are like, you, really? When you see the caliber of other people at Rusi as well, I, I, I think I'm like they're like the, 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 the sort of, I'm, their, I'm the diversity balancer. It's like we need someone from like a rough area in North <laughs> Belfast. <laughs> you're the only one, you were the only one who applied that year. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was the only one, yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming. I think that covers everything. I'm sure we're going to do another one of these at some point soon again, because you're going to have loads more stories to tell. And also you'll have even better socks on the next time. Thanks. Yeah. It's a shame I can't get them on camera. Yeah. A pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. This is wonderful. Cool.
This podcast does not contain any financial or legal advice, and you should not seek to rely on it as such. Opinions are the individual's own. This podcast was produced and edited by Joe Hawkins and music by Luke Carey. Thank you for listening and see you next time.